for the most part, caregiving is just, I would say, the veneer of the family dynamics. The family dynamics were troublesome from the get-go. And it just all rises to the surface, which happens in families when um, the parents get old and you have two siblings and one of them wants to go all out and move close to the parents or have the parents move in with them. But of course they're gonna need some help and the other one's going, oh, maybe we should have professionals take care of our aging parents and put them in some kind of a home. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of conflict. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with author of the novel Things Unsaid, Diana Y. Paul. Things Unsaid is a tale portraying family and all its emotional complexity that traces back three generations rooted in guilt, karma, obligation, duty, and broken promises. Though this novel is Diana's latest work, she also has a degree in psychology, philosophy, and a PhD in Buddhist studies. As a Stanford professor, Diana also authored three books on Buddhism. Diana is an absolute treasure, and I was delighted to meet her and get to have a conversation with her. I'm sure you will enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Diana Paul. How are you doing tonight? Fine. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, Diana, you are the author of Things Unsaid, um, which is a new novel that you've, you've published. And uh, you've got your website, dianawhitepaul.com. Um, Here's the cover that nobody can see on the podcast except Yes. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you about that later because I think that's a really, really cool cover. Um, so, yes. I'll, and I'll have links in the show notes to your website and, and to the book on Amazon and things like that so people can get to it um, so that people can see the cover that we're, we're talking about. So obviously we want to talk about the book, but before I jump into that, I, I want to talk about you a little bit. Who is Diana Paul? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? Do you have siblings? How did that all go? Okay. Um, I grew up born and raised in Akron, Ohio, which is in the Midwest. At the time I grew up, it was a boom town for the tire companies who uh, supplied American cars and American cars were the big uh, winners in the automobile industry. And I went to a girls' convent school, and I loved writing. Even before I was in school, I was writing. And then after high school, where I was the editor of the school newspaper in college, I majored in psychology and in philosophy, and I was involved with the school newspaper at Northwestern. And then I went on to get a PhD in Buddhist studies I switched from philosophy to Buddhist studies and psychology ties in with that. And then I taught at Stanford University and wrote books on Buddhism. And then when we could retire early, I decided to write fiction based yeah. on Buddhist themes. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, did you, when you were a kid, did you have an inclination that you wanted to be a writer or did that kind of come later? I was always a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And my other passion is art. So I was always sketching. I was actually the cartoonist for the school newspaper in high school. And I had this uh, sort of comic, I don't know what to call it, a comic sense 
of what uh, a convent school was like. And I put that in my cartoons. And I used to illustrate little books just for myself in elementary school. I'd illustrate them and I'd write the stories. So I've always written, I've scribbled. Um, I scribbled what my kids were saying when they were little kids. And then I kept those in little notebooks. And when they got married, I read from those notebooks of things they said when they were three and four years old. And it was a big hit for people who said they wanted to do the same thing when they had kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very thoughtful, a very thoughtful thing to do. That's pretty cool. I've never, never heard of that. Um, <laughs> that's pretty neat though. I mean, it's, it's like scrapbooking at a whole new level kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So you forget, you forget what your kids say. And some of the things that they say are so wise at the age of three or four, and all kids seem to say those things, but we forget about it because we're so busy just kind of running around after them. And so um, it was just wonderful to kind of relive those experiences because we had forgotten. We had forgotten yeah. a lot of what they had said. And I was very happy I had them written down so we could go down memory lane again with them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's very different and I don't have children, so it's not with my my children or anything. But I mean, to some extent on my on this show, I've had, you know, my sister came on and we did an episode about my, my dad who'd passed away when, when I was 20 and um, it, just ha being able to have that, that conversation save forever now. Right. So 10 years, 20 years from now, we can go back and listen to it. It's just kind of a cool, I mean, pictures are obviously very valuable, but it's cool to have language captured, whether in writing or, or recorded audio or whatever, just because there's, I don't know, there's another layer to that, I think. Right. All the sensory layers. I mean, if you hear their voices, it captures memories from just listening to their voices. And of course, photographs do too, but the stories are just wonderful. And you know, we only know a little bit about our parents. Mostly right. what we know about their lives are how they related to us as parents. And so my novel is really trying to look at the backstories of what, uh, in the case of the main characters, what their stories were like before they became parents and grandparents and how that shows who they are now, just layer by layer, you see how they evolved and changed from the dreams they had when they were young to what they are after they get married and have children. Yeah. No, I think that's a really fascinating point. Um, it was a few months after my, my dad had passed away, my mom's father passed away and I was still kind of reeling from the trauma of losing my dad. And so I, I didn't have a strong emotional response initially when my grandfather passed away and I felt bad about it. Cause I, he was meaningful to me and I cared, you know, it wasn't like I, it was, there was no, apathy or, or something. It just, for whatever reason, emotionally, I wasn't, I wasn't in that, that space. But then when we went to his funeral and he was a, a world war II veteran. So of that age, um, when we went to his funeral, they showed a slideshow and they played, um, like Dean Martin music and, you know, that kind of era of music. And it hit me in that moment, like, Oh, like that's what he listened to when he was in his twenties. Right. Like, because I mean, certainly parents, you're absolutely right. We only have this limited view, but I think with grandparents, it's even more so this very narrow view of who they are. Um, and yeah, it just really dawned on me in that moment, like, Oh, right. He was 21. And he had a 20 year old social life and wants and desires and concerns. And you know what I mean? He wasn't always a 60 year old man who <laughs> to, right. to me had it all figured out. <laughs> and it's hard to imagine that though, because all you can remember is him as a 60 year old grandparent. Right. And um, this is kind of a risque comment, but it's hard for kids to think of their parents as having sex. They right. can't think of them as young. They can't think of them as romantic. They can only think of them as mom and dad. 
and yet they had these rich lives before and they have lives even parallel to what they have to do as mothers or fathers. And so that's what I'm really intrigued about. Yeah, yeah. So um, Things Unsaid is, is, again, published by She Writes Press. Obviously, we don't want to you know, give the whole story away or something, but, but what is the blurb? What would, you, what would you tell a potential reader uh, what well, Things Unsaid is about? The blurb that goes out with most of the um, graphics is Secrets, Lies, and Karma. So the family that we know may not be the family that um, others see. You know, there's a surface um, image of another friend's family, let's say, and then there's what's behind closed doors. And mm-hmm. that's why that cover is the way it is. It's to show that there can be a lot of conflict, very deep and underneath the surface. Right. So there's shadows in the sunshine, if you want, and sunshine in the shadows. And all of that makes for a very complex picture of a family. Right. And what specifically about the title Things Unsaid drew you to that to be the title of the book? Well, actually, the publisher thought of that. Okay. I had um, for the title Unhealed Wound Mm. because of the damages that were done to each member of the family, three generations of the family. But also it has a mythological uh, symbolism. The unhealed wound is always what is a major feature of the hero in myth whether Mm. it is in a contemporary story, Harry Potter with the lightning scar on his forehead, or it could be in King Arthur, where to pull out the sword, there had to have been a wound that did not heal. Mm. And so I liked that story, but the story actually is about healing, recovery, and redemption. But the hero starts off with um, some damages to her um, self-concept. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I'll just admit, I haven't, I've not read the book, but I read about, you know, uh, what the book is about and read some other reviews and things like that on it and, and looked at your website where you've got some information. And so I'm, I'm curious, my understanding at least is that it centers in a lot of ways around caretaking for aging parents. So what would you say? I mean, is there, is there some, is there some innate trait that enables someone to be either a good or, or maybe good isn't the right word, maybe willing is a better word, caretaker, or is that more of a learned behavior or is it just some people have it and some people don't? Well, you know, you call the show, the walk show is like the walking through life and yeah. choices you make through life. And the role of caretaker or caregiver is not one that many people choose. It's thrown upon them. Mm. So when you say what kind of character would make a good caregiver, I think it's more that this is an obligation and duty that a lot of people have to face, whether it's towards their child early on, or um, if the child needs extra care or towards an aging parent or towards a husband or a wife. And so that's part of the walk through life that most of us will at some point have to deal with the questions of caregiving and how does your past with that person that you somehow have to take care of how does that past impact you if you now have to provide caregiving yeah no that's certainly fair uh the the, the past relationship would impact it significantly i i I mean i guess part of why i was why i asked the question is in my own experience even outside of of caretaking from someone who's you know maybe ill or something but just uh, you know i have friends who 
have a tremendous capacity to, to just be emotionally available to listen to people talk about their problems or, 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 you know, work through whatever trouble they're having. And, and I have these friends that are just, they're always present for that. And I, I'll just, you know, myself personally, I'm not always there in that way. Um, and it's not out of like a resentment for the individual, or at least it doesn't feel that way to me, but it almost just seems, you know, um, again, like, like maybe some people have a, a capacity to, to be in that space more comfortably at least than others. But, but maybe oh, that's sure. just a comfortable thing for me to make myself feel better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, depending upon the individual, some people do, um, do I want to say they provide more of themselves for a friend or a family member that needs support. They're not mm -hmm. asked for it. I was talking about obligation and duty where you're asked or you feel you have to come to the, um, role of that person as a caretaker but there are people who you know aunties and uncles who just love the children of their siblings as if they were their own and they love taking care of them and going out and having fun times with them and then there are others who have to be asked you know like I'll do it willingly if somebody asks me but I don't naturally want to spend my fourth of July at a swimming pool with a group of three and four year olds right so um <laughs> There, there's that aspect too. And um, I tried to look at it from different perspectives, but the perspective was really how that adult child felt about the parent. Mm. And based upon that, the caregiving role changes. But um, for the most part, caregiving is just, I would say the veneer of the family dynamics. The family dynamics were troublesome from the get-go. And it just all rises to the surface, which happens in families when um, the parents get old and you have two siblings and one of them wants to go all out and move close to the parents or have the parents move in with them. But of course, they're going to need some help. And the other one's going, oh, maybe we should have professionals take care of our aging parents and put them in some kind of a home. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of conflict. And the way I got the idea or inspired to write the theme for this book was because I had a group of artist friends and we'd get together and we'd once a week go out for pizza and a drink and a movie afterwards. And we ended up talking about our parents all the time. It was sort of this really crazy kind of conversation, no matter what we were starting to talk about, it always was directed towards what it was like growing up with the family that we had. And I recorded some of those stories. I, of course, camouflaged them or made them more dramatic. But the idea that everybody shares something in their family that is a secret or something that they wish had turned out differently, you know, it could be very small, minor stories, but some of them were truly almost horrific. And I tamped down some of them and I exaggerated others. But I thought, oh, families just are the beginning of the primordial foundation for all of us. And how do some of us survive if it's really a horrific situation we had as a child? And how do some of us just really blossom, even though we may have had that kind of uh, environment? So that's why I decided to write the story. Yeah, that was something I thought about a, a very long time ago. Um, I had to write some essay when I was in high school, even actually. And and it was about like what makes a good parent. and an, and I, I wrote, I don't know, because to your point, like sometimes you see a kid in a great situation and maybe they emerge 
and they are then inspired to create other great situations for other people. Or maybe they emerge and they're entitled and selfish and you know what I mean? And so it's like, well, what part of that equation is there? Or you see a kid who goes through a horrible childhood and maybe they emerge and they perpetuate those same things or maybe they emerge and they're like, well, I'll never let that happen. And so then they dedicate themselves to preventing that outcome for other people. And I don't know what, and I, again, I'm not a parent now, so I, <laughs> I still don't have any more insight. <laughs> but I mean, from your friends, you can say, oh, you know, you might not have predicted that that one would come out to be such a great family man or such a great uh, doctor or teacher or coach or whatever, given mm -hmm. that the background was not particularly one that you'd want for your own family situation. And then you have others who had everything going for them and like, what happened to them? How come they ended up this way? They had such nice parents and you know, their friends and everything all seemed to be just really on an even course. And then they just really went off the deep end. And that's what that group of women, all of us had stories that you, that surprised me. The women who told me some of the most horrific stories were some of the kindest, gentlest, almost um, low-keyed personality. So you would never have expected such turmoil. Mm. Do you think that there's, you know, to, to go back to the title of the book, Things Unsaid, do, do you think that that is in some way tied to how transparent or authentic relationships get to be? You know, how, like if people are actually able to address things that have been sources of conflict versus if they haven't ever addressed them? That's a really tough question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, the things unsaid of the title is just because there are secrets. There are things you wish you could have said. This happens every day, right? Things you wish you could have said to this person, but for various reasons you didn't. You might have thought that she would be offended, or you might have thought it was awkward and be a better time. This wasn't the right time to say that. So there's all those little sort of micro events in terms of things unsaid. But then there are ones that are really important for the fabric of communication and growth and um, betrayal if you don't communicate those. Mm. And that is part of the darker side of things unsaid, that some things that are unsaid need to be brought out. They need to be made transparent, as you said, for there to be uh, no damage. I'm also curious, you know, especially um, given your background in, in studying Buddhism and, and I would assume that translates into other cultures as well. Um, how much of, of the way that we think about caregiving here in the U S is, is, is kind of a cultural thing. And I have a very layman understanding, so I might be way off base here, but my layman understanding is that like here, that can be kind of a, a source of, of challenge and conflict because the caretaking isn't as um, common maybe, but, it, and I'm thinking of like maybe in, in Asian countries, it's more common for multiple generations to live in the same household. And so then is that caretaking 
a lot more commonplace. Does that make sense where I'm going with that? Yes. Um, I think actually a lot of it has to do with industrialization where mm. um, children had to move away to get to the jobs. Because if you look at the U.S. in terms of um, smaller towns where the adult children will stay in town because maybe they inherited the farm or the family business, so they do not move out of the hometown that they grew up in. And so as their families grow older, the parents will move in with them and you do have multi-generational homes. Now on the coast, broadly speaking, you don't have that so much, but with housing being what it is, it is starting to also become um, more common. And so it'll be interesting to see the dynamics because uh, people are not used to having more than one generation in a home. At least right. a lot of people aren't. So I would say culturally that um, in non-industrial, non-modern cultures that you would see much more of a common foundation where uh, it was expected that usually the eldest son would take care of the parents and bring the parents into their home. Mm. Is there is there anything to it also? I mean, I don't I don't even know how to ask this question in a good way, I don't think. But I mean, for for me, you know, I'm 37 now. And so now I think things are, are maybe a bit more clear. But I mean, like, for example, when I talked earlier about my dad passing away when I was 20, like I was truly shocked that it could happen. I mean, obviously, intellectually, I understood that death was a thing and that that happened. But it just completely surprised me that it that it did happen. I just I did, didn't fit into what I thought was going to be real. Right. Is there any sense in, in other cultures where like maybe this, this whole cycle of of life and death and aging is is more understood or is that? Not um, really well, you case? know, in Buddhism, you have um, cycles of life, you know, mm. you're reborn. So um, there's a lot of uh, reflection on the impermanence of life. Yeah. That, uh, as a friend tells me here, no one promised that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning. And that's the Buddhist real essence of the teaching is mm. that uh, the cycle of life and death, it continues over and over again. But because you don't know when that is going to happen, you need to prepare today as if it were the last day. And so all of your friends, all of your family, you do not want the last conversation you had to be one you regret. So there is a very strong sense of the impermanence of life. So if I were to say, um, is there some difference in terms of um, mortality? You were saying that you were surprised 17 years ago, very young, that your father just died because you wouldn't have thought of your father dying at such a young age, relatively young sure. for him. And I think that the concept of mortality is what is the foundation of religion. Religions were established because of this uh, reality that we're all gonna die. But I think some cultures and some religions don't emphasize it as much as Buddhism does. Yeah, no, I, the way, yeah, that the phrase impermanence of life, that's, a, that's the most succinct way I think I've ever heard that said. So that, yeah, that, that resonates a lot with me. And it's a um, shock for anyone though, when a parent dies. I mean, they say in psychology, it's one of the major sources of stress or turmoil in a person's life. There is serious illness, um, death of a parent, divorce, and um, 
the other one I think is losing a job. That mm. those are, are the major, major gut punches in life. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with a psychologist recently and he, he said, he explained, he said something about trauma and um, we were actually talking about my parents divorcing when I was a child. And, and I was like, yeah, I mean, we, they stayed in the same town. It wasn't that big of a deal. They were friendly, right? They didn't villainize each other to me. It, it, obviously I wasn't excited when they got divorced or something, but it wasn't something that I felt like I carried around as this, you know, really damning event or anything. And honestly, as an adult, look at it as like something that I am think it's the better outcome, right? It would have been worse for them to stay together and be miserable, right? Um, and he said, well, you know, trauma is really defined as people think it has to be something that's like a horrific act of violence or, or something like that. But but trauma is really just when your your understanding of the world and then what actually happens in the world don't align and you don't know how to reconcile that. And I was like, that's a pretty interesting explanation. Now, I don't know that that's the, the common understanding of the word trauma, but um, anyway, yeah, it just made me think that. of that. That's a really good definition. And also the shutting down of your own system as a result of trauma, you uh, almost have to become numb and unfeeling in order for you to process what's happening around you. You know, you, you'll be too overwhelmed. You have to take it in little tiny doses. So your, your body, your senses will shut down. So part of the reason is because the reality, what you just faced and the reality out there now, which has shifted are different but you're yeah. still uh, damaged and uh, experiencing the past trauma, not the present moment. Right, right. So another question I had is, I mean, how much does the particular circumstance of the person who needs to be taken care of matter to the caretaker? I guess what I'm thinking is like taking care of someone who maybe is suffering from a form of dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that maybe that would be more challenging than taking care of someone who maybe isn't just able to, to like go to the store for themselves and, and that sort of thing. Like how, how much does the specific circumstance weigh into a person's capacity to, to, to be a, you know, again, I don't know if willing is the right word, but to be a caretaker. Um, well, in my story, uh, my personal experience, I've never had to be a caregiver, mm. but in my story, based upon friends and just yeah. other influences in reading. Um, the story of caregiving is mainly a financial bailout. It's the theme is money. Mm. So the family has to come together and figure out how they're going to support the parents who have this very privileged, extreme lifestyle that they do not want to downsize or reduce in any way. I see. And so are the children going to feed into this kind of uh, demanding, excessive um, financial bailout? Or are they going to say, look, there's there's no choice. You know, we've got our own families. We've created our own families and um, we just can't do that. And the narcissistic mother says, I brought you into life. You wouldn't have a life if it weren't for me. So now it's my turn and you are going to support me the way I want to before wow. I die. Yeah, yeah. So when you said circumstances for the caregiving, um, I would say that you don't know what those circumstances are and they can be emotionally very difficult, whether they're the circumstances of Alzheimer's, which is something that uh, is truly devastating to the person who isn't remembered, but they're the caregiver, 
or something mm -hmm. like this, where in the case of the story, um, the main character has to decide because she doesn't have that much money, whether she's going to use her daughter's college fund to help her parents or for her daughter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's quite the dilemma. Um, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, but I guess, and what is your thought on the place of nursing homes in this? And is it, or is there not really a right or wrong with nursing homes? And it just depends on the circumstance and what the individuals in that circumstance decide. Well, in this story, um, the parents chose this assisted living facility. It's a very, very upscale uh, only for the very privileged 1%, or maybe not 1%, but you know, very, very privileged uh, affluent um, couples. And so they're leading a great life. They're just so happy there. The problem in the story is that they won't move from there. Mm -hmm. There are other facilities that maybe wouldn't be so luxurious, but they would certainly be um, nurturant. They certainly would be professional, but they don't want to have anything to do with that because they're right. too spoiled. I see. That makes sense. So, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, you, you have the degree in psychology, philosophy, a PhD in Buddhist studies. Um, and as a Stanford professor, you authored three books on Buddhism before writing this. Right. How did writing a fiction novel compare to writing a nonfiction? They're completely different styles of writing. Mm. Writing nonfiction is very research intensive. You can spend a couple of years just doing the research and putting it all together before you come up with your hypothesis to do the writing. I wrote a book about um, the first woman Buddha. And I went to Japan and I looked at the principal manuscripts and I went to London and the British Museum to see what differences there were in the manuscripts they had stored there. And so there's a lot of research that goes on. Whereas in fiction, you're creating the characters from your mind and you want characters that are realistic and authentic, that they feel this way and what they're feeling makes sense to the reader. It's not something out of character. And that creates um, a different mindset for writing. It's not so much research-based as imagining personalities. That's where the psychology comes in. Imagining personalities that this is how they would react to that event, or this is not what they would do, even though it's possible to do that. That makes sense to turn your back on the parents who are just too spoiled, but that's not in her nature because of the way she looks at her role as the oldest in the family the mm. oldest child in the family. So you have to build characters that are believable. And you also have to do some research on either, uh, in my case, in Things Unsaid, there's drug addiction. So I had to do research on um, what happens when someone becomes addicted to drugs, what kind of drug rehab facilities are there, what's the judicial system in terms of charging, indicting, and sentencing. Uh, a first-time offender. So there's different types of research, but um, I'd say the character building, the psychology of the characters, you don't have that in nonfiction and academic writing. Right, right. No, that that makes sense. I, I mean, I, um, I for a long time held this sentiment that the fiction, reading a fiction book, is for entertainment, and if I want to 
you know, expand my knowledge or, or something, then the nonfiction is the way to go. Um, but in recent years, I've, I've shifted that thinking because I've read some fiction books that were very enlightening to me. But what's your kind of take on that? Do you feel like a fiction book also offers a, a potentially educational experience, even though it's not written to be an academic or educational piece? That's a good question too, Walker. Nobody's actually asked me that. <laughs> I think fiction is very educational. Um, for example, the mother and things on set is very narcissistic. She's very damaged and flawed. And some people really hate her. One reader actually threw the book across <laughs> the room and it hit the wall. And then she said to herself, I got to finish the book though and find out what happened. <laughs> so, you know, there's an emotional release sometimes. Uh, I'm so happy I didn't have a mother like this. Or you could say, oh, maybe my mother was sort of like this and I'm not alone because here there's this book. So there's a lot of validation in fiction in terms of your emotional response to it. But I think there's also an educational level too that oh, I know some people like that. And now I know how they feel and I know how I would want to respond to them. And nonfiction, of course, you're looking at facts and historical periods and information you didn't know. So I usually read one nonfiction book at the same time I read a fiction book. And oftentimes there's some interplay, which is quite interesting to me that there are parallelisms. I'm looking at a nonfiction account of something that actually happened, but this fictional account of something that is imagined has some of the same types of emotional or um, historical impact in the sense that it's showing you how lives have changed, how social values have changed, even though it's a creative story that's um, imaginative. Yeah. Well, when you were talking about doing, you know, having to do some research for the fiction book, I, I was talking to another author last fall and, and she had kind of a similar sentiment. And, and what it made me think of is, you know, I, I've watched interviews with actors and, and they'll talk about how, you know, an actor is going to play a, a boxer in a movie, we'll just say, for example. And so he has to effectively become a boxer for six to nine months. Now, obviously, he's not really a professional boxer and isn't on the same in the same world as a real boxer would be, but still really has to invest themselves to learn that. And I'd never thought about that. That's kind of true for an author as well. You really have to put even, you know, as a fiction author, you have to put yourselves in circumstances that might not otherwise be familiar so that it is still authentic. And maybe it's not as rigorous as the academic research, but it still has to be credible or people won't be interested. That's right. I mean, I think of fiction writing. I mean, when I wrote my novel the first time, my debut novel here, I actually imagined scenes as if they were in a movie or a television series. And so I would imagine a certain actress playing that narcissistic mother. And that really gave it a lot of flesh and bones to it so that I could imagine the character almost like an actor would. Yeah. And I read about these marvelous actors who uh, do such backstory research for uh, preparing for their scenes. And none of that research is actually going to even be in the scene, but it infuses the scene with authenticity. Two cases I think of, one was Meryl Streep when she was doing this movie and uh, she plays a teacher in um, a school where they're not used to having a music teacher because it's a school with a low budget and the students are really from low income families and they're really hurting for some music in their lives. And Meryl Streep actually learned how to play the violin 
and the weight of a violin and the bow and how to carry it, even though the scene that has her with the violin couldn't be more than five or 10 seconds. Right. And another one is Nicole Kidman for um, the movie about Virginia Woolf. Of course I can't, Mm. The Hours. In that movie, she of course has one scene where she's writing as Virginia Woolf. And she practiced writing with her left hand the way Virginia Woolf did so that when she wrote on that page, it would look like Virginia Woolf's handwriting. It blew me away that uh, A-list actor would do such a thing, even if there isn't in the final cut that scene. It just is an authenticity about that person's psyche that makes that uh, performance so much more um, superior to someone who didn't do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear stories like that about, you know, quote, A-list actors a lot. And I think that that might be actually the separator is yeah. that is that level of commitment or dedication to to the nuance of it. Yes, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So um, with your writing, do you find and, and I know you said you personally haven't had a, a caregiver experience, you know, in any way similar to, to what you you've written about. So so maybe not. Um, is the answer to this question, but do you find that, that your writing is, is cathartic or, or therapeutic for you in any way um, or not, not really? It's both cathartic and stressful. It's <laughs> yeah. stressful because some of the scenes um, are really difficult to write for various reasons. Maybe I can't get into the mindset of the character. So then I'm sort of, trying so hard to imagine different ways that that character would act. So that's one that's stressful. A catharsis is when I get it right and I go, yep, of course that's the way she would feel or the way he would feel responding to that kind of situation. Mm. And sometimes I get it wrong. And I had a group of beta readers, my friends, the same circle of artist friends that uh, I shared wine and pizza with. They were my beta readers and they would tell me when they were reading drafts of it, Oh, she wouldn't do that. Oh, that's you, but that's not her. She wouldn't do that. And that was so important to me Hmm. to realize that I was either trying to force the character to do that because it was good for the plot, or I just didn't understand the character as well as the reader. Right, right. That's interesting. This is kind of a a strange question maybe, but obviously talking about caregiving for family, you know, we're, we're talking about loved ones. And I guess is love something that we should, and not, obviously this is a very subjective question, but is love something we should try and, and measure? And is it, is it measured by the level of resentment that we have for, for something like caregiving for a loved one? Or is, it, is, is, is the struggle to, to, to do the caregiving separate from the feeling of love? Um, as I said before, I haven't been in the caregiving role, but a lot of my friends have. And so it runs a wide range of responses. For Mm. some of my friends, it was so difficult, um, especially for friends whose parents had dementia and didn't really remember who they are. So that's a very, very difficult situation. But um, this is one of my closest friends. She loved her mother so much that um, she just would pretend, go along with her mother. Her mother didn't know who she was. She'd pretend, you know, I'm just here to 
make you feel comfortable. Mm. And then there are others who just really feel that all the old um, tensions and wounds and slights are too much for them to show the kind of loving caregiving because mm. they didn't receive that when their parents were healthy and young. Mm. So love and caregiving, I think a loving person will um, be able to give the caregiving in such a way that even if the parent doesn't remember, both of them get something that's very loving in return. My friend just loved taking care of her mother even though her mother didn't know who she was. And the yeah. uh, mother seemed to be very, very happy with a big smile, warm smile on her face whenever uh, my friend came in to mm. visit. What is your writing process like for the fiction book? Do you do you do free writes and and kind of pull stuff from that? Did you have the plot lined out in your mind before you started, or did you kind of discover it and uncover it as you went through? Like, what did that look like? Well, this is my advice to anyone out there listening to the walk show and is thinking about being a writer and just doesn't know how to start. I'd say the first thing to do is just sit down there how frightening it might be with the blank piece of paper or the blank screen and just throw things on the page, which is what I told students when I was teaching a creative writing class at Stanford too, that had Buddhist themes. Just throw it down. Do not be a self-critic. Do not say, oh, this is one of the worst things I've ever done or nobody's <laughs> gonna wanna read this. This is just a pile of. And um, when I write, that's what I do too. My, if you said, what's my routine? My routine is if, I don't feel like writing that day, but I have some momentum with the character, then I will just throw something on the page and I will not look at it until the next day or whenever I start writing again. Mm. So the first thing is just to get those words on the page. And I do record, as I said, I record some of my friends' conversations. Uh, I read a lot of books. I read two to three books a week. Uh, we watch on Netflix at least one movie or a couple episodes of a TV series a night. So all of that filters in. So my head is so full of stories. It's very, very hard for me to actually sift them out and decide what I'm going to choose to put down. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I have a friend, uh, one of my closest friends has a, a master's degree in in poetry and creative writing. Um, and that that's kind of the process that he showed me was was the, the kind of free writing process that you talked about, where it's just about getting it out and then you can come back and sift later. But there's some value in just the consistency of participating in the activity, whether or not you've written <laughs> your most brilliant thing or not that day. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing too, in fact, I think I heard this on one of your um, other podcasts. <laughs> Someone I think said he didn't like reading his old stories, he yeah. didn't want to pick it up. Well, 
I have this other, and this has happened with all my writing, academic and fiction. I'll go, did I write that? I don't really remember writing that because you get into kind of a zone. Yeah. And it's really weird to say this, but meditation is actually part of my, my tools for writing. So there's this zone and I start writing and sometimes afterwards I go, what did I really write all of that? It just kind of flows. And yeah. there are times when it doesn't flow, I'm not for forcing myself to stick something on the page if it's, I feel really blocked up. But if I feel sort of semi, oh, I got a few things to say, but you know, I'm not so sure it's so great. I stop that discussion and I just write it down. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there's different kinds of meditation, but um, I mean, the, the meditation I personally practice is, is mindfulness meditation, which is all about being present. And, and so I think that makes, a, I don't think that sounds bizarre as a tool for a writing kit at all, because being able to be present and just get ideas out versus wondering if it's going to work or does this make sense or is that the right word or whatever, then you're actually thinking about something other than just getting the ideas out. So that, that sounds very useful uh, to me. Absolutely, Walker. That's exactly what it, mindfulness is. Being in this moment, don't think about the critic tomorrow who might say, oh, I couldn't finish that. That is such a terrible piece of writing. Or somebody else saying to you, a friend might be saying, oh, it's taken you so long to write that. That's all you've written. All of that should stop. Mindfulness is just being in that moment, enjoying what you're doing, putting it down because it's part of the flow. You're not trying to say, oh, it's good or it's bad. You're just letting it be. Yeah. Now, how long did it take you to write this book? Oh, letting it be. It took me almost five years. <laughs> but I was, if you had to put it down into full-time writing, it would have been more like two and a half. Yeah. But I'm also an artist. So in art, I do me, uh, mixed media printmaking. And it also influences me because writing is so visual too. You know, you're creating scenes and, and the place and location can be a character. And so um, it took me that long. But I did promise myself that I had a certain amount of time and I hoped that I would have it finished by the end. And I did. Awesome. No, I think it's, I think it, I, I, I like to ask that question. I had one guy I asked, it was like two months and I was like, my God, that's the fastest I've ever heard anyone say, but I'm so jealous. I'm so yeah. Jealous. <laughs> yeah. Right. But most people, it's it not, not that it, it usually it's, it's, you know, a multiple year process, but I think it's important for people to hear that because um, sometimes things take a long time. And especially in the modern era of, you know, and this is a cliche to say, but the everything is instant now with, you know, social media and the internet and just technology. Um, and, and so I think it can be hard, especially for younger people to understand that you could work on something for five years and it could be really meaningful and awesome at the end, but it took that long, right? Like you, yeah. if you would have stopped two months in or six months in or a year in, you wouldn't have it. Um, yeah. But that doesn't diminish the, the work as a whole uh, just because it took longer. So I think that's awesome. And I would say this to authors too. You know, I've heard, I don't know any personally, but I've heard of authors who wrote a book and then it just ended up in the drawer. They wrote a manuscript, I should say, that didn't get published. And they just stuck it in the drawer and that's where it's remained for years oh. and years. I would say to the beginning writer who hasn't written anything yet and is just starting, you write, and if it takes you a long time and it's just sitting in a drawer, 
take it out and look at some of it. I mean, I always start my novels. I'm, I've uh, got a second novel that's pending and uh, isn't published yet, but I'm working on one now. And I start with short stories. So even if it's a novel, it shouldn't novel length. It shouldn't sit in the drawer, turn some of it into short stories. There are fabulous stories inside there that need to be put out there so others can read them. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's that, that's excellent. So uh, something you you spoke to just a moment ago is, is from the perspective of the writer is, you know, you're creating these scenes and, and sometimes even a, a place or a location can almost be like a character. How much does the reader matter when consuming a book? And what I mean by that is, I used to think of reading as kind of this passive activity where I'm just consuming whatever's presented, but I've actually found that when I'm really engaged by writing, it's a much more active process. I mean, it's not literally a conversation like you and I are having now that's back and forth, but when I'm again engaged by, by writing, I feel like I'm filling in some of the gaps and I'm creating some of the visual scenes and things that are happening. How much do you think what the reader brings to uh, the experience matters? Oh, absolutely. The the reader finishes the story. And mm. in book clubs, I'm always amazed at how a particular reader will finish my story. And <laughs> I mean, in a way, when I talk to them, I think, oh, I could write another story now because that's such a brilliant way of looking at those characters that never entered my mind. Right. So yes, each reader looks at the story differently. And I think a really good story the emotional response you have, you were saying how at the beginning you thought they were passive responses to the novel. A good novel, even if the characters are not ones you can sympathize with, mainly because they're not ones you can sympathize with. You have this uh, emotional reaction, like this reader that threw the book across the room. I love that. I just love that. It means I accomplished an emotional response in that reader. Yeah. 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 It means they care. Uh, yes. I, I not professionally ever just to, for the record, which anyone that's listened a lot to me knows this, but um, I dabbled in stand-up comedy again as an amateur many years ago. And I've definitely bombed. I've definitely been on stage and told a joke and no one laughs, but that's actually not the worst feeling. People think that that would be the worst feeling, but the worst feeling is actually when you tell a joke and you look around the room and no one's paying attention. <laughs> like it's, it's one thing if they, if they heard you and it just didn't click and, and yeah, that's, that can be rough. But when you look around the room and they're just like talking amongst themselves or something, it's like, oh man, like it doesn't even matter if it's good. Cause I haven't even convinced them to listen to me. You know what I mean? So yeah. it just made me think of that with the, the reader throwing the book across the room. It's like, you know, in that moment that they're invested in it, you know what I mean? And there, there's something about that, 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 that is meaningful. Well, yeah. Do you, did you take it personally when they weren't paying attention or could, I mean, I don't know that I would have taken it personally. I would think, oh, maybe they're getting a message from their girlfriend or boyfriend that they just broke up with, or maybe they're waiting for a response to whether they got the job or not. So I would, you know, it's kind of like silence. You don't hear from somebody. I always tell my husband when he doesn't hear from somebody in an email or a text, you don't know how to interpret silence. Don't beat yourself up over it. Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't, I, I don't know that I took it, that I took it personally. I didn't experience a deep shame feeling or anything like that. If anything, it's, it's almost just kind of awkward because mm -hmm. it's like, what do you do now to get them back in? You know, uh, mm -hmm. I don't mean to go off on my own <laughs> story, but the, the most uncomfortable time I ever had was when 
it was a, a the the biggest audience that I'd ever had. And to be clear, they weren't there to see me. I was the the host of the show and just you know the opener. But it, the act that I was opening for was the biggest act that that had been in in that venue. And so it was a different sound guy. And the sound guy I worked with normally was great and everything always worked right. Well, this new sound guy was just like, all right, man, go ahead and go on stage. And I was like, oh, okay. So I walked up there and I'm like 19 years old. So I'm <laughs> uncomfortable anyway. And unbeknownst to me, he didn't turn the microphone on, but I talk, which may or may not be obvious from the podcast, very loudly. I project naturally very much. And so I didn't know that the mic wasn't on and the people in the first like three rows, four rows could all hear me. So they're all paying attention. And then like halfway through my set, someone from the back yells, we can't hear you. <laughs> and then it's like, well, how do you recover? Because if you start over, the people who have been listening are like, yeah. what are you on about? And if you just continue, even when the mic comes on now, the people in the back don't know <laughs> what the premise of the joke is. So I decided to just abandon all hope and called the next act on the stage. Let's <laughs> oh, uh, see, to me, comedy is the hardest thing to write. Um, I read some scenes, you know, because when you do book launches, you have to read scenes from your book. And I was really, really flattered at this one kind of a, a big deal around here, bookstore. And he said, you know, you could be a stand-up comic from the way I read these scenes. Yeah. And I said, oh, I could never be a stand-up comic. I said, it's a blood sport to write, but it's even <laughs> more intense to be a stand-up comic because comedy is so hard to write. The timing has to be just perfect. No yes. way. No way. There's no editing. Yeah, there's no editing. And I mean, that's why I, I think that's why I like podcasting more because I can put out the podcast and the only judgment I really get is based on how many people listened or didn't. But in stand-up, right now they either laugh oh. or they don't so that you, yeah. you have to face that that judgment uh, moment yeah. after moment and yeah that that's why i always am clear to say i was not a professional because people who do that professionally deserve to be put in a different category from someone who just tried it a few times so yeah. um so we, we you know we talked about your writing process you talked about kind of the free writing you talked about incorporating you know mindfulness and meditation to it do you do journaling at all? Is that something that you're Well, as I said, into? I was a scribbler from the time I was uh, very little. So, I mean, I always write. I'm writing now, you know, just uh, some people say some things or uh, there's just certain little phrases that come into my mind. The other day I was listening to a Biden speech and just the harsh criticism right afterwards. And I go that and they were trying to couch it in positive language, but you know, it was really excoriating mm -hmm. I said to myself. That's a sunshine enema. <laughs> I came up with that term and I know some of my friends will say sometimes, oh my God, can I write that down? I have people journaling some of what I say, but I had that. And I thought, I want to put that down. So I have in my notebook, I record, as I said, and if it's something that comes to me, I thought, well, maybe sometime I can use that in a short story. So yeah. I do, I do not a type of journaling because now with the iPhone and just record. Right, right, right. Well, Diana, I, I have had an absolute blast talking with this evening. Um, again, the, the, the book is things unsaid. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that, that you wanted to speak to? I definitely don't mean to, to cut us short. If so. Oh, no, I would just say that the, the book that's pending picks up where things unsaid left off about um, five, six years later 
with um, another character because I loved this character, but she was sort of a minor character. Oh, so cool. I make her the major character in the second one, which is tentatively called Deeds Undone. Okay. And I turned it into a mystery because there's a minor character that falls dead at Stanford's floor uh, in his office. And so it becomes a mystery. Well, that sounds awesome. Well, I would love to have you back whenever that comes out oh, and we can talk you. about I that. I would love to, Walker. It was fun. Awesome. Well, Diana, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.
All right, folks. Well, that's it for the show today. Thank you so much again to Diana Y. Paul for stopping by. Again, very humbled to have her on the show and get to have a conversation with her. Things Unsaid is the book, and I will have links in the show notes where you can go to the website and follow Diana and also buy the book. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music today. And last but not least, thank you, listener. I would also encourage you to check out my other podcasts, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is co-hosted by me and Brett Lindley. Pick Up Your Sticks is a podcast about video games where we talk about why gaming matters. And my most recent podcast, The Crowfall Podcast, is hosted by me and Chris Crabtree. The Crowfall Podcast is all about the MMO Crowfall. You can find Pick Up Your Sticks and The Crowfall Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Again, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. Stay up.